Uh, We're going to read now from Psalm 45. Psalm 45, to the chief musician, set to the lilies, a contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty, and in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility and righteousness, and your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, the peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honourable women, At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favour. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colours. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations, Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. Are you an attractive Christian? What makes you attractive? One of the one area in which uh, self-delusion abounds today, I think, is in what makes us attractive to the opposite sex. Uh, males, especially, seem to have an ongoing problem in this area working out what makes them attractive to a particular young woman whose attention they hope to attract. But women too, I've found, are sometimes misguided when it comes to understanding the laws of attraction, in particular when it comes to maintaining the power of attraction long-term in a marriage. Uh, Over the years, I've done a lot of premarital counselling and one of the questions I ask young couples, in some cases those not so young, what do you think will make you attractive to your husband and wife or wife after many years of marriage? Some will answer, well, you know, if, uh, if I keep myself looking physically attractive, um, which, you know, I agree, we shouldn't let ourselves go physically. There's nothing very attractive about becoming a slob who doesn't care about looking nice for your wife or husband. But then again, on the other hand, Uh, near physically perfect film stars and models don't seem to have a very good track record when it comes to holding on to their marriage partners. So I guess that's not the main thing when it comes to long-term attractiveness. 
Uh, some will give the right answer and they'll say, uh, well, you know, if I'm caring and meek and godly and always doing the right thing, which again is important. In fact, it's very important. It's, it's, it's imperative. For the Christian in particular, there is nothing attractive in someone who doesn't care or is arrogant or is ungodly or isn't particularly interested in doing the right thing. On the other hand, I can think of some who are caring and who are meek and godly and always doing the right thing. I certainly find them attractive as people, but still I know it would, it would take more than that to find them attractive in the long term in marriage. So what is the most important ingredient when it comes to long-term attractiveness in a marriage? Okay, let's turn to that great wedding psalm we just read, Psalm 45. This is a royal psalm. The royal psalms are those that focus on the king. Sometimes the king is an earthly king, God's anointed earthly king, especially King David. In other cases, as for example in Psalm 2, the king is God's anointed heavenly king, the coming Messiah, as, he's as he is contrasted with the kings of the earth. You know, Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, against his anointed. Or in some cases, the king is none other than God himself. You get that, for example, in Psalm 93 and 96 and 97 and 99, in fact, all those psalms in between, where you get the expression, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad. And what we have here in Psalm 45 is one of these royal psalms. You'll notice in verse 3, Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty, and in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness, and your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. So this is a royal psalm. It's about the king. question is, who is the king? But this is obviously more than a royal psalm, isn't it? You'll notice in the heading, it says it is a song of love. It's also a wedding psalm. It is a wedding song. In fact, I think it's the only wedding psalm. It is a marriage hymn. And in this psalm, the king is preparing to wed his bride. In language, which sounds a lot like what you read in the Song of Songs. We read how the groom is preparing himself, like in verse 8, all your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. It sounds like the, the song of songs, doesn't it? And then his bride appears. There is to be a wedding. Verse 13, the royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colours. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought, they shall enter the king's palace. So now we've got two questions. We've got who is the king and who is the bride? And then in the middle of this psalm, in verse 6, we get this remarkable verse. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So whoever the king is, he is addressed as God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The king is God. But then it says in verse 7, 
You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So here we have the king is addressed as God, and yet addressed as God, he is directed to his God. He is God, but there is another who is also called God. So what does this mean? We don't have to wonder because the Bible explains the riddle for us. If we go over to Hebrews chapter 1, because here in Hebrews chapter 1, in fact the whole of the book of Hebrews, the writer contrasts the glory that belongs to angels. Okay, his readers at this ca- at, in this case were right into angels, just as lots of people that get into the occult today are into angels. But the writer to the Hebrews says, you're selling yourself short. The glory of angels is nothing compared to the glory of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So in verse 7 of Hebrews 1 he says, of the angels, God says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. And then he goes on in verse 8 and says, but to the Son, he says, and then he quotes from Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. In other words, more than the angels. So the Bible itself tells us that these verses in Psalm 45 are referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the king who is spoken of in this psalm. He is the Messiah. He's the one who is anointed by God, as it talks about there in Psalm 45, verse 7. That's, of course, what the word Messiah means in the Old Testament. It's what the term Christ means in the New Testament. It just means the one who is anointed by God. But more than that, the Messiah is God. He is addressed as God, as we saw in verse 6 of Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Jesus is God the Son, but at the same time he is distinguished from God the Father. You love righteousness and hate wickedness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So that's who the king is who is referred to here. Who then is the king's bride, who is the royal daughter who marries the king, And again, of course, we can discover this from the ongoing revelation that God gives us in his word. We get a clue from the way that that great passage about marriage speaks in Ephesians chapter 5. You remember there in Ephesians 5, Paul teaches about marriage. And first of all, he quotes from the book of Genesis. And he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then he explains this further by adding, this is a great mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Marriage is but a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. As wonderful as marriage is here upon this earth, it is but a reflection of something even more wonderful. It's a a picture of the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and the whole body of believers in him, such as I trust many of you are today. Jesus is married to that body of believers. 
And such a wedding is actually portrayed for us in the last book of the Bible where believers are portrayed as the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, for example, in in, uh, Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6, you read, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns, there is God the Father, it goes on in verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, so there is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord's anointed, and his wife has made herself ready, it says, there is the bride of the Lamb, who in that passage are identified as the whole body of believers. We who are believers are the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are the bride of Christ. So this psalm, Psalm 45, is then talking about the marriage of Christ to the body of believers. And if you are a believer, this is a theme that should get you excited. The writer is excited. He begins this psalm by saying, my heart is overflowing with a good theme. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Okay, another biblical writer on this subject, dealing with marriage, but ultimately with that marriage of all marriages, he called his book The Song of Songs, the greatest of all songs. And if you are a believer, it should excite you to consider this great theme because this is a great theme. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. But if to you this is a good theme, if it is a great theme, there is one theme that will be weighing upon your heart, and it is this. If we, the church, are the bride, are we attractive as a bride? I mean, surely any bride wants to look attractive to her husband. And no less we, the church, the body of believers, want to be attractive to Christ. Okay, Christ is attractive to us, or I hope he is. We sing, fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, son of God, son of man, thee will I cherish, thee will I honour, thou my soul's glory, joy and crown. We sing that, don't we? We sing as, as in Psalm 45 verse 2, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Christ is attractive to us. Do we, as believers, not want Christ to find us attractive to him? How can we be attractive to Christ? What do you think will make you attractive to Christ? What is it that is the most important way in which a husband or wife is still attractive to their spouse even after many years of marriage. That's what the psalmist wants you to understand. In verse 10 he says, Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Listen to me, consider what I have to say, incline your ear to my words. I mean, that does sound like it's, it's worth listening to, doesn't it? I mean... If you want to know the most important way in which you as a husband or wife will still be attractive to your spouse, even after many years of marriage, and more importantly, according to this psalm, if we as believers are to be attractive to Christ. Verse 
Forget your own people also and your father's house so the king will greatly desire your beauty. Notice that. So, because of this, the king will greatly desire your beauty. This is the reason the king will greatly desire your beauty. This is what you must do for the king to greatly desire your beauty. What must you do? Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear, forget your own people also and your father's house, so the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. So there are two things there, above all others, that make a husband or wife irresistibly desirable to their spouse, even after many years of marriage. We usually sum this up by the two words, leaving and cleaving. Okay, when God first instituted marriage back there in Genesis chapter 2, he did so with those two words. He said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Or in the words of the authorised version 400 years ago, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and then the two shall become one flesh. The most attractive thing about any husband to his wife or wife to a husband is that he has forsaken all others and he cleaves only to her. That's why we say in the marriage ceremony, will you love her, comfort her and honour her and keep her in sickness or in health and forsaking all others, leaving, keep yourself only to her, cleaving, as long as you both shall live. There's something about forsaking all others and keeping yourself only to her. It makes her someone uniquely special in your life and it makes you especially attractive to her. If your wife believes that she is unique in your eyes, if she believes that she is the centre of your earthly universe anyway, you will never look more attractive to her. And wives, if your husband believes he is unique in your eyes and if he believes he is the centre of your earthly universe, you will never look more attractive to him. On the other hand, there is something peculiarly ugly when a husband or wife does not forsake all others but builds up an intimate relationship with a third party. There is nothing more unattractive to a wife than a husband for whom his wife is no longer uniquely special. There is nothing more ugly on the face of the earth than unfaithfulness in marriage. So how are we to achieve this special attractiveness? How are we to achieve this special faithfulness that makes us so attractive to our spouse and more importantly makes us as a body of believers attractive to Christ? Leaving. Forget your own people also and your father's house, so the king will greatly desire your beauty. So what does it mean to forget? I mean, uh, can we ever really forget all past associations? There are something like three different ways the Bible uses the word forget. The first is the common way that we use it today, and that's especially around this time of year when many are caught up doing exams, and that is that 
disability of mind when we have trouble retaining information in our memories. We're all afflicted this with this to some extent, some more and some less, so I won't get more personal than that. The second way the Bible speaks about forgetting or not remembering is in terms of not holding something against someone. And that is how we are to be when we forgive another of their sin. Okay, we say, forget it. I already have, meaning we're not going to hold it against them. We probably can't erase it from our memories, but we aren't going to let it affect our relationship with them in any way at all in the future. That, of course, is exactly what God does when he forgives us our sin. As he says in the Bible, your sins and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. Okay, God doesn't forget our sins in the sense that he erases them from his memory. In that sense, God never forgets anything. And nor should we forget our, our past sins, at least in that sense. But he no longer holds our sins against us and he will not let them affect the relationship that he has with us. But there's a third type of forgetting in the Bible, and that's the one which is spoken of here, and that is to forget in the sense of leaving behind. You forget a former aspect of your life, you leave it behind, you're not going to return to it. Now, in this sense, you are to leave behind your family. Okay, Christ commands those who would be his, forget your father's house. Of course, even in, that mar- in, in, in earthly marriage, you leave behind your family. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. A man must forget his former family to start a new family, cleaving instead to his wife. And that doesn't mean, of course, that he forgets his father and mother in the sense that he erases them from his memory. Well, of course it doesn't mean that. I mean, the command to honour father and mother endures as long as father and mother do. Nor does it mean that he ceases to love his father or mother. But it does mean that now he will love his father or mother less than his wife. From now on, he gives his wife priority in his life. And it does mean... Normally, at least, he won't return to live in his parents' household. Okay, I know, that especially today, there's sometimes extraordinary circumstances, maybe because of financial stress, a family may return to the parents' household, at least for a limited time. Um, and, and, of course, as, as a parent gets old and can't look after themselves, it's right that you should take them in and, and look after them. But normally, one should leave one's parents' household and focus instead on building one's own household. In the same vein, Jesus says to those who would follow him, if any would come after me and does not, does not hate his father or mother, and yes, even his wife and children, as well as his brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus didn't mean that we are to literally hate father and mother, certainly not our wife that we leave father or mother for, but he did mean that we are to love father and mother less than him and wife and children less than him and even brothers and sisters and even our own life less than him. In this sense, we are to forget our father's house. Above all, we love Christ. 
And though our Father's house, who they may not be believers, and though they may plead with you to follow a certain path, yet you must think for yourself, you must be loyal to Christ. Your first loyalty is to Christ. Our first loyalty is always to be to Christ. And where that is so, Christ promises, Assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers and sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, he added, and in the age to come eternal life. And then it says we are to leave behind our people. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear, forget your own people also. If we are to forget family in the sense that I've just spoken of, that goes double for the people, the culture in which we live. Again, we give Christ first priority over the values and demands of the culture in which we live. When we follow Christ, we leave behind our people to commit ourselves to be part of the people of God. I mean, like Ruth protesting to Naomi, so we boldly say to Christ, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. The culture around you makes continual demands upon you. It has certain expectations of you. It might be in the realm of entertainment and leisure, perhaps the films you might watch, the clubs you might go to. Your people expect this of you. They think it's strange, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. Forget your own people if you want to be attractive to Christ. It might be in the realm of values. In the name of tolerance, your people expect you to treat all religions as equally valid, all beliefs as equally valid. Especially nowadays, they expect you to endorse sinful ways of life like same-sex marriage. In fact, one of the increasing Challenges facing Christians in society is when a son or daughter or relative enters into a same-sex marriage and they want you to come and celebrate their sin with them and the father or mother or relative has to say, no, I'm not going to celebrate your sin with you. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Forget your own people if you want to be attractive to Christ. It might be in the realm of idols. When we are young and strong, but poor, your people make an idol of wealth. They will do anything to get wealth. When we are old, and maybe or maybe not wealthy, but no longer young and strong, your people make an idol of youth and beauty. They will do anything to be young and attractive again. But do you want to be attractive to your people, or do you want to be attractive to Christ? Forget your own people if you want to be attractive to Christ. It might be in the realm of whom you will marry. Your people will encourage you to marry as they would. And it's not that the woman they want you to marry is a bad woman or unintelligent or unattractive. 
but she is from among your former people. She is not among, from among the people of God. And again, when it comes to whom you will marry, you must forget your own people if you want to be attractive to Christ. And then especially you must leave behind the world of the sin and the devil. You might say, well, what has the world of sin and the devil got to do with my former life? What has it got to do with what the psalmist refers to here when he says, forget your own people? Good question. I mean, the Jews asked the same question in Jesus' day when Jesus said to them as they were trying to kill him, you do the deeds of your father. And they said, well, you know, what do you mean? God is our father. And Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. Do you understand that? If God were your father, if God is your father, you would love Christ. The test of whether or not God is your father is whether you love the son of God, whether you love Christ. But if you don't love Christ, who is your father? Jesus said, if you do not love me, you are of your father, the devil. If you don't love Christ, the devil is your father. The Bible describes, in fact, it describes all people this way. Yes, even those of us who are now Christians, but we weren't always such. Once we were not lovers of God, we did not love Christ. Rather, we were all of us led by the world, the flesh and the devil. And that's what the Bible says, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Those in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, there is the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit in our works and the sons of disobedience, there is the devil, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, there is the flesh. We were all by nature, it says, children of wrath, just like everyone else. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear, forget your own people also. Forget the house of your father, the devil. And in this case, forget in every possible way. I mean, don't just love less, as is the case with your father's house. But don't love at all. Hate, loathe, positively detest. Forget your own people also and your father's house so the king will greatly desire your beauty. But as well as leaving, there must be cleaving. I mean, what makes a husband or wife so attracted to their spouse is both the leaving and the cleaving. It says a husband or wife leaves and cleaves that the other will greatly desire their beauty. Okay, let me reiterate what I said before. Your long-term attractiveness to your spouse is not in your physical appearance. I'm not saying that's unimportant. I'm just saying it's not what makes attraction last. I mean, how can it? Your physical appearance isn't going to last forever. I was... Uh, I was reminded of this even a few years ago when I received a Father's Day card from one of my young granddaughters. That was nice, wasn't it? Get a Father's Day card, not just from a daughter, but from a granddaughter. And on the card she had drawn a picture supposedly of me, but inexplicably there were scribbles all over my face. Well, that's okay. She was very apologetic. She said, I'm sorry, Grandpa, 
but I ran out of room in knowing how many more wrinkles to put on your face. Sweet child. I suppose I should be thankful she gave me a card. And by the way, she's not known to some of you. I know one of my granddaughters is known to you. Nor is long-term attractiveness found merely in qualities such as being caring and meek and godly and always doing the right thing. They're very attractive qualities. They're important in marriage. But they don't make your relationship any more special with your marriage partner than with anyone else who is caring and meek and godly and always doing the right thing. But what makes you especially attractive to your spouse is more than this. It is that they know that they are to you the centre of your world, at least when it comes to your earthly relationships, only your relationship with Christ has priority over that. They are special to you. They know this because you have left all for their sake. You have forsaken the priority you'd given to any other relationship and you now give priority to them. You are devoted to them. And that, as I say, is what makes marriage so special, leaving and cleaving, forsaking all others, and becoming devoted to this one person. Nothing is more attractive in you as for the other to know that you have left all and you are now devoted to them. Without that, all attraction in marriage eventually dies. And the same in our relationship with Christ. What is it that means he greatly desires your beauty? It is that you have left all and you are now devoted to him. Nothing is so attractive to Christ as that his people have have first place in their hearts for him and are devoted to him. But how is this devotion, this cleaving, to be expressed? I mean, history is strewn with thousands of hopeful, hopeful relationships where a young man in a perhaps in a moment of passion exclaimed to his, to his girl, I am hopelessly devoted to you, when really in many cases all he was was hopelessly devoured by his own lust. It's easy in a moment of passion to say those words to get what you want, but words are cheap. So what is the real evidence of devotion, of cleaving when it comes to our relationship with Christ? Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear, forget your own people also in your father's house, so the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. If you are devoted to Christ, he will be your Lord. And that means you will obey him. You will obey him because you want to obey him because you love to obey him. Plumer says in his commentary on the Psalms, he says, if Christ is the husband, he is also the Lord. That means he must be obeyed promptly, uniformly, universally, cheerfully, lovingly. If we are devoted to Christ, we will want to obey his word, we will obey his word. Let me say what he, Plumer says again. If Christ is the husband, he is also the Lord, and that means he must be obeyed promptly, uniformly, universally, cheerfully, lovingly. Okay, this is repeated so often in scripture that it should be obvious. Just a few verses. Jesus said, John fourteen fifteen, If you love me, 
keep my commandments. Again, John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Notice that if you are devoted to Christ, it will show in that you obey his commandments, and this will make you attractive to Christ. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, I know you might say, well, hang on, whoa, 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 whoa. How can my devotion to Christ affect how much he loves me? Isn't the love of Christ, the love of God, unconditional? It doesn't depend upon what I do. It doesn't depend upon my works. And that is true so far as your salvation goes. God could not love you any more. God could not love you any less when it comes to whether or not he loves you enough to save you assuming, of course, you are one of those who is saved. But your attractiveness to Christ certainly depends upon how you live and certainly upon whether your devotion to him comes out in obeying him. Okay, turn to that passage again in Revelation 19 that I referred to before. There in Revelation chapter 19, we read first of all in verse 6, Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Goes on verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. How has she made herself ready? What makes her attractive to her bridegroom? And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The righteous acts of the saints. They are not what saves her. It was not because of her righteous acts that the Lord agreed to marry her. That was grace. It was all grace. But it is the righteous acts of the saints that make her so attractive as a bride. Just as ideally a wife is loved by a husband, no matter what mood she is in, I could reverse this and say a husband's loved by his wife and so on, but okay, we're talking about Christ and the church. Let me stick with this, okay? A wife is loved by a husband, no matter what mood she is. However uh, she conducts herself, uh, she is loved unconditionally. He will not divorce her. The strength of the marriage doesn't depend upon her ups and downs in, in her moods. But her attractiveness does. How attractive she is to her husband depends very much, as we have seen, upon whether or not he is to her the centre of her earthly world or not. Another verse, John fourteen twenty three: If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Here's a wonderful picture of the intimacy of marriage, isn't it? We will come to him and make our home with him. What is it that the bride does that breeds such intimacy? What makes the believer so attractive? If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. One more, John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. By keeping Christ's commandments, we are attractive to him. We abide in his love. Now, perhaps... 
you find yourself saying, well, you know, I'm really close on this one because I'm really careful to keep God's commandments, so I must be really attractive to him. He must really love me. Before we get too carried away, let's ask ourselves this. Do I really love my brothers and sisters in Christ? What about those brothers or sisters in Christ that irritate me or that I don't always agree with? Because if there is one commandment that Jesus really insisted on, it was this. Let me just give you one reference. John 13, 34. Now and well to all of you. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Three one another's. Are you devoted to Christ? Is he the centre of your world, the whole of your world? Not just your earthly relationships, such as your husband or wife might be, but the whole of your world. It is only then that he is your Lord. I mean, he's the one that's spoken of here in Psalm 45 that loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Show Christ that he is your Lord by loving righteousness, by hating wickedness. You can't have one without the other. Show him he is your Lord by leading a life that shines in personal holiness. Show him he is your Lord by loving your brothers and sisters, even those that you don't always agree with and sometimes rub you up the wrong way. And worship him. Remember the one who reigns in this psalm is not only the Messiah, he is also God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. As God, we are devoted to him. You love him. He has first place in your heart. That is what makes you attractive to him. But as God, you also worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. For such, he says, seeks to worship him. Jesus is God. He is God the Son. He is your Lord. Worship him. Worship in spirit and truth, for such he seeks thee to worship him, so the king will greatly desire your beauty. Listen, O daughter. Consider. Incline your ear. Forget your own people also in your father's house, so the king will greatly desire your beauty Because he is your Lord, worship him. Let us pray. Almighty God, we stand amazed at the great love with which you have loved us. We acknowledge that in this is love, not that we loved you, but that you loved us and sent your son to be the propitiation for our sins. We thank you that you have joined us to our Lord Jesus Christ, that we who have believed in him, are found in him. And we pray, O God, that you would help us that we might live lives which are attractive to Christ, that we might be able to rejoice in you and that you might be able to rejoice in us. We pray for any of this day who are still outside of Christ, who are still of their father, the devil. Please, Lord, work in their hearts and draw them to yourself that they too might be able to enter into the joy of the Lord For we ask it in Jesus' name.
Amen.